audience the message. I can't walk down a sidewalk just holding my cell phone without tripping. Darby played piano and sang and used her foot on the bell. So very impressive, Darby. You amazed me. Um, before we get started, let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you hear us. Thank you that you give us so much. And God, as I was recently reminded at Thanksgiving, we have so much more to be thankful for, but so often we focus on one or two things we can complain about instead of looking at all that you've done for us. God, we're grateful that we get to gather together and we get to lean in close to you. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you will speak today, that you take me out of the way, and that we'll hear from you. And I pray all these things like I believe Jesus Christ would. Amen. Um, if I ask you, what is your hope for the future? What gets you excited that the future is going to be better than the present? What would you say? For me, I've heard some people say some different things, and I'm like, I just don't know if that's really going to make the future better. Like some people hope in politics. They're like, man, if just the right people get in, the world would be a better place. Or some people say, if we had more money, if I had more money, my life would be better. Or if we got enough money, we could fix all the world's problems. Or maybe sometimes people say, like, I really believe in science. I remember Darby and I were sitting in a uh, restaurant one day, and there was this couple on this weird date, like, next to us. You ever been there with somebody's on a weird date, and you're, like, overhearing it, and you're like, I just don't want to hear this anymore. This is so awkward. And the woman was, like, super just on her phone, like, I just want to get out of here. And the man was saying the most bizarre things, and he said, if we didn't go to the moon, that means there's no hope in engineering. And if there's no hope in engineering, I don't want to live anymore. And I'm like, what kind of date is this? Like, run, woman, run. But sometimes people say, you know, if science can figure everything out, the world would be a better place. But I think that all those things are good and can do good things, but I don't think they solve the world's biggest problem. The big, world's biggest problem is us, right? Like, if you had all the money in the world, you'd still have some self-destructive tendencies and use it poorly. If you had all the best politicians in the world, power still ends up corrupting and people would still do things selfishly. Or if science figured out all the problems in the world, well, it still would have selfish people at the helm on the planet. See, human beings have this selfish tendency to do self-destructive things that are, um, that are selfish, that hurt others, that hurt themselves, and hurt the planet that they call home. We're just, we're self-destructive people. According to the Christian faith, um, this is called sin. This selfish, self-destructive tendency is called sin. I know it's self-destructive to eat three whole pies at Thanksgiving. She's laughing because it's true. Um, it should be true. I know that I will feel sick and I will feel horrible. I'm going to have a sugar headache. I'm going to be laying on the floor saying, why did I eat those pies? But I still do it, right? And there's probably things you do that are self-destructive and you know they're wrong. You know they're going to be bad for you, and yet you still do them. Maybe it's a little spending problem, or a little drinking problem, or a little problem on the side. Maybe it's a little outburst of anger, but we have these self-destructive tendencies where we know, like, oh man, if I could just get rid of this, things would be better. And money, and politics, and science, as great as they can be, they're not going to solve the biggest problem, which is me, which is you. See, our sin is us crowning ourselves king over our lives, insisting that what we want is right, that we can decide for ourselves, regardless of the consequences to other people or the long-term consequences to ourselves or to our planet. See, sin separates us from a loving God who is our rightful king. We can't say, I'm king, and then say, but I still want a connection with you, God. 
He's like, my only rightful place is on the throne of your life, is on the throne of your world. And so when I look to the future and I want to be hopeful, I don't look to hope in politics or money or science because I don't think they can change the world's biggest problem. They can't change me. They can change some things around me. They can make some things more comfortable for me, but they can't change me. A lot of times when we start thinking about how the world's biggest problem is people, we're usually like, yeah, if those people got their act together, the world would be better. Or if those people agreed with me, then the world would be a better place. Or if I could just get those people fixed, then the world would be a better place. But according to the Christian faith, the starting point for the problem of the world is not looking at other people, it's looking at ourselves. And saying, oh yeah, I, I've got to start here because I'm part of the problem. In fact, if everybody else on the planet got their act together and were perfect, but you were left here, if I was left here, I'd mess it up for everybody else. That's part of the message of the Christian faith. We're self-destructive people, and so the change needs to start with us. If we're going to have a hope for a better world, we need to start with seeing ourselves and that's why I believe the gospel is the hope of the world. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about the gospel. It's such a church word that's thrown around. But what is the gospel? What actually is it? What does it mean, the good news of Jesus? Why is it good news? And we've talked about that over the last few weeks. And this is our final message in that series before we start our Christmas series. See, I think the gospel is the hope of the world because every problem in the world is a people problem. At the root of it, every problem in the world is a people problem, and the gospel changes people. In Colossians 1.23, the Apostle Paul was writing to um, the church in Colossae, and he says, Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. You were far away from God. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death, to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. He says there's this hope in the gospel. The hope of the world is in the gospel. And this is a gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. He says he's a servant of the gospel. It's his mission to take this good news to every creature under heaven. Notice what Paul says here. Because of Jesus' death, it says in verse 22, you were reconciled by Christ's physical body through death. Because of his death, we can live his life. We are now holy in the sight of God without blemish and free from accusation. Because of his death, we can live his life with the hope that one day we will be fully like him. What's the hope of the world? For humans to live and love like Jesus. Right now, we're students of Jesus. We're trying to learn, like, what would it look like to live in love like Jesus? What would it look like to be disciples of Jesus' way of life? But our hope is one day we'll be fully like him, and a world full of people fully like Jesus will be a better world. Now, when it says that we will be like Jesus, it doesn't mean that we'll lose our sense of self so that one day you're just like, I'm no longer Alex. Now I'm Jesus, you know, and you start carrying around a cross and wearing robes or something. No, no. But it's, we're going to find our full self, our true self, when we act the way that he did. When we live and love like he did, when we operate in the same way, we're going to be fully like him. That doesn't mean you stop being you. It just means you begin to operate like him. The hope of the world is to fill the world with little Jesus. 
That's the hope of it. You want to make the world better? Fill it with people who live and love like Jesus. Now, the word Christian, we throw around all the time today, but in the first century, it was unusual. Um, in fact, in the book of Acts, you see where they were first called Christians. Before this, they were called followers of the way. The word Christian means little Christ. And if we want to, um, essentially what they're saying when they call someone little Christ is, um, when I was small, my dad's name is Jeff, and they said I look just like my dad. And they would say, hey, there's little Jeff. They called me little Jeff because I looked like my dad. I behaved like my dad. There were some similarities between me and my dad. They called the early believers little Christ because they acted like Jesus. They looked like Jesus in the way that they behaved. And so, if we want to change the world, we need to be similar to Jesus today. Many times people are called Christian simply because they attend a place or they've signed off on a statement of beliefs, even if they don't live or love anything like Jesus. And yet, in the first century, you were identified as Christian, little Christ, because you lived and loved like so I started looking around this idea of hope. The gospel is the hope of the world. The good news of Jesus is the hope of the world. And so I did some reading about hope. Now, have you ever had a moment in your life where you felt hopeless? It's like, there is no good future. That's what hopelessness feels like. Like, no matter what happens, there is no good future. There is no good outcome. There is nothing ahead but struggle and pain. I remember when my wife and I were trying to get pregnant for several years. And we just we reached a point where we're like, this is hopeless going nowhere. Like there's no future we can imagine where this works out. Now we're adopting and so we have hope again. But there was a time where you just feel like the weight of the world is on you and you're like there's nothing that's going to get better. We're just going to continue down the same path and nothing's going to get better. It's only going to get worse. So I was reading this psychological article about hopefulness and hopelessness and they said, they did a study of people, and they said that people who went into a change, hopeful that they would see a change result, were much more likely to actually accomplish it than someone who went in and said, it's hopeless, but I'll give it a shot. In fact, they said hopeful people tended to set learning goals, realistic short-term goals, achievable goals that would let them get to a master goal. But it, it was interesting, what this study found was hopeless people would set super high goals that would be impossible to achieve in a short term, and then they would make it a self-fulfilling prophecy, and they would say, oh, I couldn't reach this unrealistic goal, and so they would give up after trying for a short time. So I thought that was interesting. Hopeful people set short, manageable goals that will get them to a long-term goal. Hopeless people end up setting big goals that they know they can't reach so that they can give up. So, if the gospel is the hope of the world, what kind of short-term goals should we be setting to live and love like Jesus? What kind of short-term goals should we be setting to share the good news with hopeless If you decide that by the end of 2020, you're going to be 100% living and loving like Jesus, you're going to be disappointed. It's not going to happen. But I think that if you set some short-term goals and you say, you know what, Jesus practiced rest. And my life is so busy and all over the place and overscheduled, I never sit down and rest. Maybe that's a place where I can start living and loving like Jesus. 
Maybe you could say, Jesus practiced loving his enemies, and I have some people in my life who are horrible to me, who I really want to destroy rather than love, and maybe I'll start with loving them. If you decide, though, that in 2020 you're going to be completely living and loving like Jesus by the end of the year, you'll likely be disappointed, and you'll give up trying to become a student. One of the things I love about Jesus is Jesus never hurries something as important as your spiritual journey. He's very patient. It's like, you know, when you mass produce something in a factory, it's like, how many products can we get out as fast as possible? My dad was a woodworker, and he would make things by hand. And um, he made guitars, and he made beautiful wooden um, ornaments, and he would just go out there and tinker with stuff. He would take his time. He would take so long to make one thing. And I'd be like, Dad, it took you eight months to make this. And he's like, yeah but it looks really good. Like I, I invested eight months of time in this. And so when he gives it to somebody, it has a lot more value than a machine processed it in 30 seconds. You know, he handcrafted it. And Jesus is handcrafting your spiritual life. He's hand, um, he's teaching you, guiding you. He's one-on-one -on -one tutoring you to live and love like Jesus. He would rather you genuinely learn how to live and love like him rather than skip the studying and ace the test. Have you ever known anybody like this? Darby's brother was like this. He wouldn't study for a test. He'd go in and he's just like, right answer, right answer, right answer, right answer. He just intuitively knew how to take tests. I'm pretty good at taking tests, even if I haven't studied the material, because I'm like, huh. I bet they would ask this question because they want this answer. And sometimes I get thinking too deeply and I mess myself up. But there are some people, and it's frustrating, when they can do really well on a test without studying. Um, it used to frustrate me because I took seven years of piano and I don't play. It's horrible, like I barely play piano. Um, my dad though, he can walk over to any musical instrument and he's like, tinkers a little bit, and then he just plays a beautiful uh, sonata on it. And I'm like, how do you do that? He's like, I don't know. You know, he didn't have to study for the test. And so he can't read music, but he can play music. And sometimes there's those people in our life where they skip the studying and ace the test, but Jesus would rather you actually learn the material, not just get an A on the test. He wants you to actually know it. And I think sometimes as churches, we failed in this. We've taught people the right answers to the questions, but we haven't actually taught them to become the right person, to live and love like Jesus. So if the gospel is the hope of the world, if the gospel is the hope of your 2020, what is the gospel? Well, we've summed it up several different ways over this series, but I've been trying to get it down to the most condensed statement I can, and uh, I've come up with this. Because of his death, we can live his life. Because of his death, we can live his life. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. And people living and loving like Jesus are going to change the world. King Jesus is coming to set things right, and he's bringing an army of men and women and boys and girls who live and love and operate like he does and so as we've been walking through this series on the gospel, we've been looking at every occurrence of the word gospel in the book of Mark. And this is our final one today in the last chapter of Mark, Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 15. And it says, early on the first day of the week, after he had risen, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. And she went and reported um, to those who had been with him as they were mourning and weeping. Yet when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe it. 
After this, he appeared in a different form to two of them walking on their way into the country, and they went and reported it to the rest, who did not believe them either. And later, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and their hardness of heart, because they did not believe those who saw him after he had risen. And then he said to them, go into all the world, preach the gospel to all creation. Now this passage here references the story of Jesus appearing to Mary Magdalene, which we find the full story of in John 20. It's just a verse here mentioned. And it also mentions the story on the road to Emmaus, where Jesus appeared to two of his disciples leaving Jerusalem, and they're walking alongside somebody that they don't recognize. And uh, he's like, why are you guys so excited? What's going on? And they're like, you haven't heard the news? There was Jesus. We thought he was the Messiah who came to restore the relationship between God and man. And he was executed. And now some people are saying he's alive. And Jesus talked with them on the road. That story is found in Luke 24, if you want to read that whole thing. Here it just gets a brief mention. And then we see that Mary Magdalene goes back to the disciples, Jesus' closest followers. And she says, he's alive, just like he said he would be. And they're like, no. We talked about this some last week where, you know, the first people to believe that he had come back from the dead were women and men didn't listen to them. Men dismissed them and they were actually right. They were the first to believe. They were the first to know that he was alive. And so Jesus then shows up in person to his 11 disciples, previously 12, but Judas has betrayed him and then went out and committed suicide. And so now there are 11 and they're just weeping and mourning because they think everything's over, even though people keep coming and saying, Jesus is alive, he's alive. And he shows up and he does two things. The first thing he does is he rebukes them and then he commands them. He rebukes them because over and over again when he was alive, he said, I am going to die so that you can live my life. But I'm also not going to let death keep a hold on me. I'm going to come back. And if death cannot hold me, it will not hold you when my life becomes your life. He says, you're not going to have to fear death because I'm going to conquer death. But they didn't listen to him. They didn't believe him. And then he shows up and they're all surprised. And so then he gives them this command though. He says, you're to go everywhere, everywhere in the world and preach the gospel to all of creation. Now this is a weird word choice here. He says you're to preach to every creature. You're to go everywhere and preach to all of creation. It's the same type of phraseology that Paul used in that first session, uh, first se section in Colossians that I read. Paul says, this is the gospel which you have heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. Now, most of the time when I was growing up in church, I heard people say that, and they're like, this means to preach to all people, to go out and to share the good news with all people. But there's a bigger idea actually going on here. I always thought it was weird. Weird. If it's to all people, why say creation? Or why say creature? Uh, and as a kid, I was like, man, should I be telling my cat about Jesus? Like we had a bunch of cats that lived outside and they were real angry and mean. And I was like, should I go out, try to hold this cat down and tell them about Jesus? Obviously, that's ridiculous, right? So what is Paul saying? What is Jesus saying when he says to go everywhere and to preach the gospel, share the gospel, bring the gospel to all of creation. Now, the same Greek word that's used here that Jesus says uh, is translated creation is the same word that Paul uses that's translated creature. And that word is katesis in Greek. My Greek is not great. Thank you, Seminary. 
uh, catesis. Now, if you've been on the keto diet, this is not ketosis. This is different. And that was bad. Um, I thought at least Justin would chuckle back there. He's been on the keto diet now for like months and months. And uh, so catesis is actually this idea of all of an organization, every level of an organization. It would be like if you sent a memo out to your company and you said every department in the company needs to get this. Does Billy need to get it? Yes. Does the CEO need to get it? Yes. Does the janitor need to get it? Yes. Every level of the company needs to get this. And so this word here, catesis, is um, saying every level of creation, every creature, everything that's living on this planet is going to be affected by this good news. So spread the good news everywhere you can because every level of creation, every level of life is going to be affected by this. It applies to everything from the smallest cell that we can't see to the largest whale. From the smallest source of life on the planet to the, the biggest living thing. What Jesus and Mark and Paul are saying is that the gospel affects everything that is alive. And everything that has ever lived. See, the gospel is an invitation for humans to lay down their crowns and make Jesus king of their planet. And first of all, king of their lives. It's an announcement to the trees and to the foxes that a good king is coming to set things right. It's an announcement to the people and to the children that a good king is coming to set things right. There are animals that starve because Jesus is not king, and there are children that are sick because Jesus is not king. Every level of life on this planet is to be notified that a new king has been crowned, and he's coming to set things right. He's coming to establish his kingdom. And so as we go into Philly, or as we go into the suburbs to go to work, or to go to school, to go home, we're carrying the same message. There's a new king. He's starting his reign in my life, but he wants to spread his reign across the planet. And we are ambassadors of this new kingdom, servants announcing that his rule and reign will be good. We're to show what the rule and reign of Jesus will look like by living and loving like him. It would not be a reign of politics, even though he is king. It would not be a reign of money, even though he has all the resources of the cosmos at his fingertips. It would not be a reign of science, even though he put the scientific principles that we are still discovering into play in the universe. It will be a reign of people. People living and loving like Jesus. With Jesus as our king. What I've found is sometimes uh, we think shouting at people are going to change people and make the world better. Or we think commenting on someone on social media is going to change people's mind and make the world better. Or we think that protesting will make the world better. Or boycotting will make the world better. But the only thing that makes the world better is the good news of Jesus Christ. Because it's the only thing that changes the world. Because people change by encountering the love of God and learning to live and love like Jesus. So the gospel is the hope of the world. The hope of the world is Jesus. Not a religious knowledge that will make you feel superior to your fellow humans. Remember, Jesus spent a lot of his ministry condemning the people who thought exactly like that. The hope of the world is people learning to live and love like Jesus. To make him king in my life so that he gets the command the way that I live and act. And he promised that all who called on his name and committed to become his student would be empowered by his spirit. Because let me tell you right now, living and loving like Jesus is impossible 
without God's supernatural power working in you and through you. And so he promised to send his Holy Spirit to empower you to live his way when you commit to become his so as we come to the end, I think we have to ask two questions. What are we hoping that? Do we have hope? One of the things I love about the scriptures is it says that God is going to use all things, good and bad, in our lives to teach us to live and love like Jesus. And that means when something comes into my life that's unexpected or uncomfortable or unpleasant, I don't have to get afraid because I recognize this is still part of my hope to become like Jesus. To live and love like him. To be more like him in 2020 than I was in 2019. And he's going to use circumstances in my life to make me like himself. And so I have hope. Am I afraid that something bad might happen? That something unexpected or unpleasant might happen? We always have that fear. But I have hope that even if something bad happens, God's going to use it to make me more like Jesus. And then the second thing I think we have to think about is... Are we carrying the gospel? Are we living and loving in such a way that it makes people curious about who's ruling and reigning in our hearts and minds and lives? Are we making people curious about what it would look like to have Jesus on the throne of this planet? And then when they ask questions, are we ready to tell them, Jesus is king of my life and it's changed everything? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for coming and dying for us, that we might live your life. But death could not hold you. It could not keep you down. You threw off its shackles, and you declared that we no longer have to fear death if we have your life. Thank you for bringing us eternal life, that we might live in your love forever. And I pray all these things like I believe Jesus will.